And uh, though some of you might think that 3 a.m. messages are hairy, um, I'm really excited to be here today. And um, uh, it's an idea that's been rattling around in my head, And uh, but whenever Gary Knox shows up on your phone on a Saturday late night, it's never good. Uh, but it is an opportunity, and I really do um, appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. I have a few props today. I went out this morning out into my uh, garden, and, you know, it's still really cold. So, you know, it was a bountiful garden year. So we have, like, cucumbers here, pumpkin. We've got big tomatoes. we got thousands of little tomatoes. We have beets, carrots, potatoes, watermelon, Crenshaw melon. A really bountiful year. And uh, I have to say it's not always that way. But when we first moved here from Alaska several years ago, uh, we found out that things like tomatoes and melons not only have color like they did in Alaska, but they actually have flavor here. Because, you know, everything ships up on a barge up to Alaska for the most part, and things don't, especially tomatoes, they just really don't have any flavor. And so... um, So, you know, the first year we started out, tilled up this new patch of ground and got planted and everything just grew amazing. It was amazing. And then about just near the end of the year, we started having some weeds. It was mainly an invasive grass that kind of got into the garden, but it was no big deal. I just, you know, tilled it in in the fall and figured, well, we'll pick this back up next year. Well, there are really, I, I really can only think of two things today of tasks that I would say I truly hate. One of them is painting. I hate to paint. I'm a mean painter. Uh, pretty much Sue leaves me to paint all by myself most of the time. The other one is pulling weeds. And, and I guess it's, you know, I did a lot of that when I was a kid. I just hate it. And so um, last year, uh, when the weeds started coming up, it normally happens in June pretty significantly. It, it was massive. And I was like, well, I'll just kind of hole around stuff and kind of try to control it as opposed to getting rid of it. And um, at, at the end of the year, the garden was looking pretty, pretty lean from the perspective of what it was producing with the exception of these weeds. So I thought, well... I mean, I'm not a farmer, but I grew up in North Dakota. We had big fields behind us, and I saw guys every year. They just turned the ground over, and it didn't seem like they did anything else, and they just started it in the spring, and everything was fine. And so I thought that's what we did, right? So I take my tiller back out, and I till all this stuff back in, and then in the spring I till it all again to get started just in case something survived up top, and, and off we go. And last year... I have to say it was the most massive bunch of weeds in my garden that I had ever seen. Because what was I doing, right? I'm taking these clumps of invasive grass that are naturally invasive, and instead of one clump, I turn it into a hundred, and I spread it down, the, and I just kept going, and that's all I had. And so when June came, I pretty much saw that, and I was overwhelmed. And so... The garden was totally choked out. There was, it produced nothing. And then finally about July, because I'm watching this, I know what has to be done. But I didn't want to do it. 
And finally, come July, I had decided I'd had enough. So first up was the riding mower. I'm not exaggerating one lick. This grass was this tall in my garden. Everything around it was nice manicured lawn, and you got to the garden, and it was this tall. So I get in my riding mower, and about, I don't know, quarter mile an hour, I just start going across that stuff. Fill up the three bags behind me, throw it into my tractor bucket, haul it way down to the other side of my property, which is about a quarter mile away, so it can't get started again. Mowed the whole thing, came back, lowered the deck, mowed it back the opposite direction, came back around, taken another direction, mowed it all down. So then, I couldn't bring the mower in today, but I thought I'd bring a couple other props. So, so then comes the sprayer. I said, I've had enough. And so, regardless of what you think about Roundup, it works really well on these weeds. So a, a combination of Roundup and 2,4-D, just in case Roundup didn't get one of them, the 2,4-D would. So I sprayed everything with Roundup. Turned the water off to make sure it stayed, and I waited about two weeks until everything was brown. Then... I got to tell you, with this thing, everything in my body wanted to have this connected to a propane tank right here. Because if you have you ever heard one of these things, and with everything that told me I wanted to light this and do that in here, came a stronger voice that said, "Don't do it." So I left the propane tank home to make sure I didn't change my mind. But, right, all these weeds and seeds that were on the surface remained, right, though hopefully they were all dead. So then I burned the entire garden. Then I turned the water on, sprayed it for a week or two. Green started coming back. Got my sprayer out, sprayed it again, waited some time, burned it again, sprayed it again, burned it again. Spring came. I waited. Turned green some, not much. Sprayed it again. And then I burned it again. Because I was pretty sure that's what it was going to take. And that is what it took. So, this is church, not gardening 101, right? You know, as I've said before in the few times I've gotten to teach, my passion is to take the solid teaching that we hear here on a weekly basis and turn that into practical application because that's how I think. I think far more in so what, how do I apply this when I walk out the door tomorrow? Um, that's just how I'm wired. And it is amazing to me how God reveals his practical application of his word in country living. So in this case, as all this time went by, God showed me how my life can be just like that garden. I can have stretches of easy gardening where everything just seems so easy to produce fruit. 
You just plant a seed and let it go. But then, like when those sprouts of grass first appeared, we see sprouts of sin popping up in our lives, and we think we can control it or manage it while we're still doing our gardening in life. Or maybe we just ignore it and simply not acknowledge that it's even sin at all. But what happens? It continues to grow in our lives and crowd out the things or the fruit that God had intended for us to produce. Ultimately, if left unchecked, it's all that we can grow. And if we're lucky, we've come to that point in our lives where we say, we have had enough. See, the weed killer and the torch were in my shop for years. Have to have them out where I live. But I did not appropriate their power to kill those weeds until I'd had enough. And as followers of Jesus, the power of God's word, prayer, and the presence of God exist for us 24-7. But we have to appropriate those things to deal with sin in our lives. Now, especially in church here, there are a lot of things that we say. You know, that we say we acknowledge about uh, what God says about sin and and, you know, how we're supposed to deal with them. It's quite another to own them. For me, I can talk about sin without feeling convicted all day long until I start saying, my sin. I identify that that is my sin, not just sin generically out there. So, some things that I think we throw around a lot, but I want to revisit and I want to challenge you to own it. Each of these areas. First off is, we all sin. Romans 3.23, for we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've heard it a hundred times here. But do we really... Do we really own that? Do we really walk through our lives recognizing that? Not that we live there, but do we recognize that we have that propensity in our lives day in and day out when left to our own devices? Romans 7, 15 through 25 in the NIV. This is like Paul totally, he gets it, right? When he writes this, it's almost confusing enough just to read, much less to apply, right? And it says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. For what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I have to be careful reading this, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. 
I get that. We walk out here, especially on a Sunday after a message, and, and we walk out with resolve of, of how we need to respond to what we've heard and what the Holy Spirit's communicating to us through the message. And yet, as we go through this afternoon and into tomorrow and through the rest of the week, we find ourselves just like right here. What I hate, I do. really important this next one I think at least it is for me to recognize and admit that our participation in sin is our choice any of you that grew up in the 70s remember Flip Wilson comedian he had this uh, character he used to play called Geraldine it was a female just I want to do it but it would just be too loud and weird but one of the things as she's going through it, she always said, the devil made me do it, right? The devil made me do it. And that is such a prolific excuse for sin in our society today. Well, Satan made us do it. Satan tempts us. He never makes us do it. We choose to do it. And in the Christian life, that's one of the original excuses that began in the Garden of Eden. You look at Genesis 3.13, says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil made me do it. Here's why we sin. Romans 3, starting at verse 10 to 18, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why we sin. That's our nature. Without God changing us. And to continue in our sin is to believe that what we have carved out for ourselves is better than what God has for us. And so we continue in our own sin. The next point to own is this. We cannot manage sin. Intentionally keeping it in our lives while trying to walk with Jesus and think that that's not going to have some sort of effect. 1 John 1, verse 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. cannot manage sin that we want to keep in our lives. Next one is, sin harms us and it grieves God. Galatians 6 verse 7, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Verse 8, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Ephesians 4, 17, starting at 17, the New Living Translation, I like that one. With the Lord's authority I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to those in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Our sin grieves or brings sorrow to the Holy Spirit because he loves us and he knows that sin hurts us and it strains our relationship with him. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit because God loves others and there's no such thing as a private sin. Our sin hurts others. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit because he is holy and hates all sin. The next point to hold on to. We cannot have victory over sin without appropriating the power of God in our lives. We cannot do it ourselves. Proverbs 
28.13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. John 15.3-10 through 10, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. For this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. No matter what you are facing, no matter what battle you're fighting, no matter what sin you're resisting, you're not going to face it alone. Because God is with you. God is in you. And God is for you. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. God is working in you. The word working in the Greek is the word energos, from which we get the word energy. And author William Barclay categorized this word's translation as divine power and action. You are not just going on willpower, because you'll never get there. You're not just going on your own power. God says he will give you the power you need no matter what you are facing. Not only is he with you, or I'm sorry, not only is he in you, but he is with you. The Bible says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. You. In both Joshua and Hebrews, he promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. Never. Romans 8, starting at verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? 
Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above, or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. So worship team, as you come up, here's my question to you. Actually, I have two. Oh, you guys come up. So the first one is, what is the weed in your garden that you're struggling with? Everybody has one. What is it for you? The thing that comes to your mind as soon as that question is asked. That's what you need to do business with. More, more appropriately, that's what you need to ask God to do business for you. My second question is, have you had enough? You'll continue until you get there. Just take the shortcut. Have you had enough? Let me pray. Father, I thank you that uh, we could be here today to hear your word. And I just pray that as each of us...